Good morning, good afternoon, and possibly good evening to everyone. Welcome to this uh, uh, webinar of the, uh, the Middle East Institute at the National University of uh, Singapore. I'm uh, Jean-Louis Saman, and I'll be the moderator for the next uh, one hour and a half. And we will be discussing uh, a major topic, uh, which is the uh, aftermath of uh, COP28 that took place uh, almost two months ago uh, in uh, Dubai. Uh, and the big question, uh, which is the title of this uh, webinar being, does COP28 signal an end to uh, fossil fuels, uh, which is a major question and which relates to a lot of the skepticism or the, the questions that surrounded initially uh, the, the COP28 uh, before uh, the event itself. But what is striking is, uh, in retrospect, when you look at the document uh, that came out of the COP28, one major outcome of that event was the conclusion of the first ever global stock take, which is a mechanism to measure collective progress towards meeting the goal of the Paris Climate Agreement, which had been signed uh, back in 2015 at the previous COP, COP21, the one uh, that took place, obviously, in Paris. But for fossil fuel producers, uh, which actually were granted uh, one of the highest, if not the highest representation in the history of COP uh, at the last event, there are also many questions. Uh, the inclusion of language such as transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly, and equitable manner. End of the quote. This was perhaps one of the most striking of the COP28 outcomes. So we will be discussing uh, uh, those uh, elements and uh, a lot of other questions, such as the, the main outcomes uh, of COP28, if it uh, is on track to meet the overall goals uh, of this process with regards to keeping uh, uh, the 1.5 degree Celsius uh, within reach. Uh, we'll also discuss uh, the big question of, does that uh, signal the end uh, for fossil fuel industry and also uh, the geopolitical implications that come uh, with uh, the, those outcomes uh, with regards to uh, the Middle East and in particular Gulf states as well as Asia with a look at China, uh, Japan, also Southeast uh, Asia. To discuss all of those questions, we have the pleasure uh, of having four distinguished speakers with us uh, this afternoon. We will start uh, with opening remarks uh, by uh, Mr. Mohamed Al-Zaruni, uh, who's uh, uh, the head of economic and political and media affairs sections here at the UAE Embassy in Singapore. Prior to joining the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation of the United Arab Emirates, Mr. Mohamed Al-Zaruni uh, served in his capacity as senior data engineer under the previous Minister of Higher Education. He holds a bachelor degree in mechanical engineering from Cardiff, uh, Cardiff uh, University, as well as a master of science in mechanical engineering management from the University of Southern California. And let me add also that he uh, holds a master's in international law, international relations and diplomacy from the Sorbonne University in Abu Dhabi. Uh, following uh, remarks by uh, Mr. Mohammed, uh, we will uh, uh, then listen to uh, uh, Ms. Sharon Sia, uh, who is a senior fellow and coordinator of the ASEAN Studies Center in Climate Change in the Southeast Asia program 
here on campus at the ISIS Yusuf uh, Ishak uh, Institute of the National University of Singapore. Let me uh, add that uh, uh, Ms. Sharon spent 15 years prior to her current position in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Singapore, as well as the National Environment Agency. Her research interests uh, uh, focus on ASEAN, ASEAN, sorry, ASEAN multilateralism, rule of law, as well as climate change. She graduated with a master in public and international law from the University of Melbourne, and she's the co-editor of various publications, such in particular as 50 Years of ASEAN and Singapore, which was published in 2017. We will then also listen to Ms. Kate Dorian, who's a fellow of the Energy Institute and serves on their advisory committee in the United Kingdom. She's also a non-resident fellow at the Arab Gulf State Institute in Washington, and prior to that, she held various positions uh, within, with the entities such as the World Energy Council, the International Energy Agency, Reuters, and she's also, let me add, a contributing editor uh, at MEES, which is a specialized uh, media on Middle Eastern economic affairs. Uh, let me then uh, uh, introduce our last uh, speaker, my colleague, Dr. Aisha Al-Sarihi, who's a research fellow here at the Middle East Institute of the National University of Singapore. She uh, focuses uh, on clean energy policy, as well as climate economics, policies and governance, with a special focus on the uh, Arab region. She holds a PhD uh, from Imperial College in London, as well as a master's degree and BA uh, with distinction uh, in environmental science from the Sultan Qaboos University. Prior to uh, moving to Singapore, she held various positions as visiting scholars uh, with the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, with the London School of Economics, uh, and as well as the King Abdullah Petroleum Studies and Research Centers in Riyadh. Now, without further ado, I'll uh, leave the floor uh, to uh, uh, Mohammed Al-Zaruni for the first uh, uh, remarks. Uh, Mr. Mohammed, floor is yours. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Jane. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, uh, just looking at the speakers, I really wish that somebody from the UAE also participated, you know, as the host of uh, COP28, but unfortunately, they're not able to uh, to get a speaker at the time. Uh, I guess they are still very busy from COP28 or the follow-ups from COP28. Uh, nonetheless, uh, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, jo joining us online, it is my pleasure to attend today's event as we delve into the impactful outcomes of COP28. Uh, held in Dubai last December, COP28 served as a crucial platform for advancing our collective response to the existential challenge of climate change. COP28 commenced with a clear vision. Number one is to accelerate the energy transition through rapid emission reductions. Number two, transform climate finance through innovative solutions. Number three, prioritize nature and people in climate action. And number four would be to ensure an inclusive dialogue for transformative change. Each day, we witness dedicated discussions and collaborative uh, efforts, ultimately, there were several key achievements uh, and 
I actually attended uh, all of COP28, so it, it was very nice to you know to be there and witness those achievements. So for the loss and damage fund, uh, I think this was on day one. It was a landmark, a landmark agreement which uh, op operationalized the loss and damage fund with the UAE pledging $100 million. And we garnered over $792 million in global commitments. This basically signified a tangible step towards supporting vulnerable communities facing the harsh realities of climate impact. Uh, we also saw, so COP28 also saw one of the largest mobilization of climate finance to date. In total, pledges, ex uh, pledges exceeding $85.1 billion solidified renewed global commitment to energy transition, adaptation initiatives, and the Green Climate Fund. These investments translate into concrete action on the ground, propelling progress towards our shared goals. We also, I think Dr. Jin, you also mentioned this, which was the global uh, stock take. Now, this was basically, uh, I think Dr. Jin, you mentioned that the successful conclusion of the first ever global stock take that urged accelerated efforts to keep 1.5 degrees Celsius within reach. Notably, the agreement on transitioning away from fossil fuels in a just, equitable, and ordinary manner marked up uh, uh, basically a shift in the climate conversation. Uh, lastly, there was the uh, expanding the climate dialogue, where COP28 witnessed a broadening of the global climate conversation with initiatives such as 11 pledges to triple or even double our energy efficiency by 2030, the inclusion of food, peace, and health in climate discussions, and a record-breaking green zone, which attracted over 500,000 visitors. This basically broadened engagement, foster, uh, fostering a more holistic and inclusive approach to climate action. Now, the transition away from fossil fuels understandably uh, carries significant weight for both producers and consumers. In the UAE, we recognize the necessity of change and are actively diversifying our economies while ensuring a just and equitable tr transition that prioritizes energy security and affordability. Open dialogue and collaborative efforts with major partners like South, Southeast Asia are crucial in navigating this transformation. Now, while the challenges remain, the remarkable progress that was made in Dubai provides a springboard for collective action and accelerated implementation. Moving forward, we must translate commitments into concrete actions, foster international cooperation, and leverage innovative solutions. Now, I won't uh, take much of your time anymore. I think I'm also very, mu very much interested in what uh, Ms. Sharon, Ms. Kate, and Dr. Aisha would also be saying and, or uh, will be discussing, actually. So thank you very much. and. Uh, wish uh, that we have a fruitful session ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mohammed, for uh, uh, this uh, this uh, great overview on uh, the uh, the outcomes themselves. Uh, let me let me turn to uh, to Sharon uh, for the the next uh, uh, presentation. Thank you, uh, Jean Loup, and thank you to uh, MEI for organizing this event. Very good afternoon to our esteemed speakers. Uh, Mr. Alzaruni, thank you also for that overview. Um, and really, it's been uh, it's a very timely event because you know we've had to take time to actually digest all of that outcomes, and to uh, analyze the implications, particularly for this region uh, that we live in. 
Since the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change came into force in 1994, we've had many successive COPs and even concluded the Paris Agreement in that interim years. And as Mr. Al-Zaruni uh, Al said, you know, the Paris Agreement mm. was to bring us collectively uh, to nearer to our goal uh, of um, limiting the global average temperatures to well below 2 degrees and to pursue efforts to limit that temperature increase to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. But unfortunately, we are not anywhere nearer to this collective goal than when we started. I think I don't have to repeat it to this well-informed audience, but we have had on the record the hottest year in 2023 and the preceding years before that were equally record smashing. Not that this is anything to be proud of, and if you haven't felt the heat, then uh, you, you must not be living on the same planet. Uh, you would also know that four-fifths of the total carbon budget has already been used up. So that means that we have a, actually a shorter runway to meet our collective goals. Now, if you look at the outcome of the first global stock take, which, by the way, it's quite an inventive uh, mechanism under the Paris Agreement to really um, look at all of our uh, targets and, uh, and how much we've achieved. The current NDCs will actually only reduce emissions by 2% compared to 2019 and a mere 5% when including conditionality. And this means that our rebound from the COVID-19 pandemic and the attendant economic downturn has been very strong. So this is actually good for struggling economies, but really terrible for the climate. Um, when we look at the implementation gap, the actual policies that implemented supposedly by 2020 would have resulted in higher emissions compared to those implied by the NDC. So this is really an irony. The global stock take itself had no mention of fossil fuel phase outs and instead only focused on tripling the renewable energy capacity, accelerating efforts towards a phase down of unabated coal uh, with a focus on hard to abate sectors and of course, a focus on being bringing about an orderly, just and equitable transition. Not that these are not important, but actually these are second order. The first order of the day must be to fully phase out the use of fossil fuels. The only bright spot out of the global stock take was the agreement for all countries really to submit their next NDC updates with quote-unquote ambitious economy-wide emission re reduction targets covering all GHG gases sectors and categories at least 12, 9 to 12 months before COP30 in 2025. Now, if every party abides by this agreement, it will at the very least put all of our NDCs on the same page and make it easier to compare targets, uh, economy-wide targets and not sectoral, and compare our results across all countries. So apart from the global stock take, another bright spot for this region is the, that uh, there was a high-level spotlight on food and agriculture issues. As you know, this is our lifeline. And for the first time at COP, nearly 160 countries pledged to align and integrate food and agri-sectors into climate change commitments. Now, this is very significant for Southeast Asia because the agricultural sector for six out of the 10 ASEAN countries is a major contributor to national emissions. But more needs to be done to engage the very fragmented sector that we're talking about. We're talking about millions of small-scale farmers across the world and across the region playing their part and incentivizing them to use low-carbon techniques in farming. But as a result of this general lack of consensus on phasing out fossil fuels, we are seeing many pledges and announcements made 
around the COP by interested parties who want to see greater progress. Uh, that includes the summit on methane and non-CO2 GHGs, the coal transition accelerator, the clean energy transition partnership, that global uh, pledge on renewables and energy efficiency. Not all Southeast Asian countries are part of uh, these different groups. So we are seeing also the proliferation of climate clubs uh, that seek to drive ambition. And it really remains to be seen if many or if any of these initiatives will bear fruit or they will only remain as top shop. Now, what does this mean for Southeast Asia? I think first, Southeast Asia is a price taker on climate ambition. Uh, individual countries in the region, such as Singapore, may have their own ways and means to achieve climate ambition on your own steam. But if global ambition is low, then it is likely many developing and least developed countries in the Asia-Pacific region has no choice but to take that given price. So apart from Malaysia, Singapore and Brunei, uh, the other eight ASEAN countries, including Timor-Leste now, actually carry heavy levels of conditionality in their NDCs. And because of the low trust deficit in the promised climate finance by developed countries, developing Southeast Asia um, firstly still retains that sense of historical injustice at having to bear the cost of climate change and uh, not actually being the contributor to it. But I think we're past that point of debate now. Even putting that aside and without the assurance of conditionality, majority of Southeast Asian countries would need transition finance assistance, including having to catalyze more private climate finance to help themselves. So the IEA's estimation is that some two a trillion US dollars is needed annually by 2030 for the transition to net zero. Second, for Southeast Asia, a very tricky policy and economics-related question is whether to move to a transition fuel or to go full steam ahead uh, to renewable energy. In the 2023 Southeast Asia Climate Outlook Survey by my institute that polls regional uh, respondents across 10 ASEAN countries, 45% of the respondents view natural gas as a good temporary replacement for coal, but they still want their country to work towards harnessing RE. This is compared to 18% that say that natural gas is a, an ideal replacement full stop. So we can perhaps take a leave from our own transition from land-based internet to mobile internet using handheld personal devices because the progression from 2G to 3G, then 4G and now 5G was so quick, each generation brought uh, significant improvements in speed, capacity, efficiency. Thus, it helped many developing countries to bypass the need to build physical internet infrastructure using landlines. So cell towers and fiber optic was able to deliver internet services to otherwise unserved areas. And today, farmers in India, China, Indonesia can access internet services, including banking and others easily as anyone uh, with a landline uh, connection. So the question really for this region is, should governments invest in costly energy infrastructures for a transition fuel such as LNG terminals or move right on to install uh, RE capacity, including solar, wind, and so on? And then the third and my last point is that the geopolitical undercurrents and political developments can undermine a transition. Events of the last few years, including the Russia-Ukraine war leading to a disruption of shipping in the Black Sea uh, and leading on to a, a knock-on effect on food security, the Israel-Hamas conflict that has precipitated actually the Houthi attacks, again another disruption, uh, or export control restrictions arising from a combination of major power rivalry, domestic bans and so on, can disrupt the transition uh, towards 
clean energy. So one example that is increasingly being discussed is the security or supply of critical minerals in the production of clean energy technologies, uh, such as solar panels, wind turbines, and batteries. So one reaction to this has been the establishment of different interest groups, such as the U.S.'s Mineral Security Partnerships, as a way to friendshore some of these resources, uh, which is why at the sidelines of, of, uh, of COP, uh, the U.N., Secretary General's proposal to establish a panel on critical energy transition minerals to develop common and voluntary principles to guide extractive industries and manage some of these geopolitical risks should be welcomed and also supported. Now, this year, 2024, is a massive electoral year for several countries, including Indonesia, and we just saw the elections last week, uh, India and, and the US, and all of these countries are actually significant actors in the global emissions reduction race. Now, the electoral uh, um, uh, results may bring some surprises for us, and not least that the possibility of a Trump 2.0 presidency, where we may again see the rollback of environmental and climate commitments, uh, remains quite real. So I think I will end here, and I'll be very happy to take questions later. Thank you very much. And I'm sure we'll, we'll have the uh, opportunity to come back to uh the question of uh, a scenario of a Trump presidency and po possibly what it means for the future of uh, climate change. Uh, let, let me turn to Kate uh, for uh, the next uh, uh, presentation. The floor is yours. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm very honored to be among this distinguished panel and um, I, I am in Dubai. So even though I don't represent the UAE, I lived here for so long that I feel as if I'm part of the uh, fabric. So I'm going to give you a number first. And I heard this before COP from Dr. Sultan Jaber when he said, because the theme of our, our talk is, is at the end of the beginning of the end of the of fossil fuels. He mentioned a number saying today, the world economy runs on 200, the equivalent of 250 million barrels of oil, gas, and coal. I mean, that's quite a big number. So if you look at the IEA and projecting that all fossil fuels are going to um, peak and then go into sort of plateau or decline uh, by 2030, it's quite a big number to replace when you consider the small percentage uh, of renewables. I mean, if you add hydropower renewables uh, of all kinds and nuclear, you're still not going to get to 20%. So I think it's it's difficult to say it. It's beginning the end. Maybe it's the beginning of the decline. Um, if you look at, for example, the text of the COP28, which I think is very rightly being described as a big success in that it mentions fossil fuels for the first time, but it lumps them all together. And there is one interesting line in there which says it recognizes that transitional fuels can play a role in facilitating the energy transition while ensuring energy security, which interpreted means likely natural gas. So if you look at the Middle East region, which I look at very closely, uh, this is where there's going to be a lot of additional gas capacity. Now, if you look at the latest Shell LNG outlook, um, last year, trade in LNG rose from 397 million tons to 444, oh, sorry, to 404 million tons last year. And they forecast demand will actually rise by 50% by 2040 due to coal to gas switching, uh, mainly in, in Asia. But at the same time, we have about 500 gigawatts of new 
full capacity waiting to come online, of which I think about 360 is in, is in China. Now, listening yesterday to um, Dr. Jaber, John Kerry at the IEA, because they held this sort of post COP28 um, event, um, they were actually, Dr. Kerry was saying that he thinks, Mr. Kerry, um, that he thinks that the China will reach, because of the rise in renewables capacity in China, that they will actually reach their targets by 2060, uh, before 2060, by 2045 or 2050. Uh, because there will be more, um, you know, some of these coal plants will not actually come about and they'll be replaced by gas and renewables. Um, when it comes to oil, it's a different story because there are still so many parts of the energy system that we cannot decarbonize. Um, if you look, for example, at all these alternative, uh, you know, we're talking hydrogen, we're talking blue ammonia, Saudi Arabia, for example, which had been banking on blue ammonia uh, due to the growth in, in its, um, when Jafura comes online, it can't find off takers because there is still not a global market. We don't have an aggregated demand uh, market for green hydrogen. It's all very sort of bilateral relations. There's no global market. So that's, unless you can take a final investment decision, some of these projects will not come online. Uh, the IEA in its projection for a decline in or a peak in oil demand is putting a lot of stock in the growth in um, renewable energy, particularly in the transportation sector, EV growth. So, but they're not aligned with what OPEC sees as the oil demand growth by 2045. So, however, even in the most optimistic net zero scenario of the IEA, they still see about you know, 25 million barrels a day of, of oil in the energy system. So I think it's to say it's the beginning of the end. I think it's the beginning of the decline. Uh, we just saw recently Saudi Arabia saying they're not going to, um, Saudi Aramco is not going to increase production capacity by a million barrels a day. I don't think it's directly related. I don't think they saw the light. Uh, at COP28, um, let's not forget that they were among the holdouts for uh, not using the term phase out of fossil fuels, because at the end of the day, the Gulf countries, despite a, you know, a, a very big push into renewables, particularly we're seeing in Oman, in UAE, obviously is the leader, and Saudi Arabia is actually fast catching up, and now they have a very ambitious target of, uh, I think it's 150 um, 150 megawatts of uh, renewable capacity. So what they're actually going to be doing is capacity will not really change, but you will have more uh, once Jafura comes online with uh, with liquids production, that they will have saved about 1.7 million barrels that they can export. So I don't think that's going to change the balances very much. But again, I think, uh, as Sharon said, I think we are ignoring the fact that there is geopolitics at the moment that could derail the or it could shift our focus away from this climate crisis um the election in november which uh, will uh, you know coincide with uh with the baku um the, the cop 29 and i was listening to laurent fabius yesterday saying the former a french prime minister who's also the uh, former president of uh, COP21 in, in, in Paris. And uh, he was saying, you know, the international situation is not very good. He's not very optimistic about prospects for COP29, which is really going to focus more on, 
on uh, on investment. And as uh, Sharon mentioned, you know, you're, you're, we need to start talking in trillions, not just in billions. Yes, it's all very well that we set up the uh, loss and damage fund in Dubai, but it's still you still require you know the 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 the, the uh, the the requirement is is so huge. I mean, if you look at it at the moment, the IEA says that last year fossil fuel investment was uh, one trillion compared to one point eight trillion in clean energy, but that's only fifteen percent of that was in the emerging developing countries. So there's a big problem, and that number has to rise to about four point five trillion each year starting the next decade. So there's a lot to be done. And I, I'm just reminded of something that um, the Dr. Fisheraki said um, recently. He said, you know, by 2050, a lot of the people who set these targets are going to be dead. So who's going to be accountable? You know, it's it's worth mentioning. But again, if you have an election, if you do get a Trump, you know, the second um, term, um, we can see some of the climate um, agenda being rolled back, not all of it, because there are certain incentives that I think a lot of states will not want to give up. But we've also seen the rise. If you look at Europe, we're seeing a rise in sort of a, a very populist uh, movement of right wing. So and that's sort of not very good for the climate. But I think all in all, we're heading in the right direction. And I don't think um, that, uh, you know, this new trend of moving away from fossil fuels, I don't think is going to disappear because even if you look at the IE, at, at the UAE's NDC, they do recognize that there is a high risk and, and particularly in this region, which is a very, very high risk from the impact of, uh, of global warming. So um, I think we're on the right track. It's uh, the IEA's now said they're going to set up a tracking system um, so, and that's something that's been lacking. Uh, carbon market, that's also very important. And that's something that was actually not included um, in it. And uh, I would advise you to look at the Oxford Institute uh, of Energy Studies sort of post-mortem on, on COP28, which makes reference to this. And it's actually a very, very good analysis of, you know, what was done. But the, the general consensus is, is that we really do have to make a move because there is no faking it anymore, as quoting John Kerry again. Thank you very much, uh, Kate. And let me turn uh, to my colleague Aisha for the, the final remarks before we move to the Q&A session. Well, thank you very much, Chandov. Um, uh, good afternoon from Singapore. It is a pleasure to be with the, this distinguished panel. Uh, it's hard like uh, to come with uh, comments after Sharon and Kate, uh, who mentioned uh, a lot of uh, 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 outcomes uh, and uh, implications uh, from the COP. Uh, but from uh, my end, uh, probably what I will delve in more is uh, two questions. So I attended COP28 and I attended a few COPs uh, before. And each time when I attend the COP is, uh, we always have this question, are we uh, going to uh, keep 1.5 uh, um, uh, within reach? This is uh, the main questions that we try to uh, find a solution uh, to like in each COP. Uh, and then also I want to delve in uh, the main title of this webinar, does the transition away signal an end uh, of the fossil fuels. I will delve more uh, on the language used. Uh, I know Kate has already answered this question. A short answer is no. 
but I will delve on this uh, later on. So first of all, does uh, the COB keep us uh, on track uh, uh, for uh, keeping 1.5 degrees Celsius within reach? Um, so ahead of COP28, there are uh, many scientific reports that have been uh, released uh, to measure whether we are on track of keeping 1.5 degrees Celsius within reach. But the findings from most of these uh, scientific reports are really worrying. And the most uh, maybe significant report is the UNFCCC synthesis uh, uh, report on the technical dialogue of the first global stock take. Uh, which uh, really informed the decision of the COP28. And the report uh, clearly highlighted that the current uh, national climate pledges will actually uh, lead to the rise uh, in the temperature by 2.4 to 2.6 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. And this is way beyond our target uh, of keeping the uh, rise in the temperature well below 2 degrees Celsius. And also, as Sharon mentioned, the report highlighted that the implementation of current climate pledges uh, would, uh, you know, reduce the emissions on average by two uh, uh, percent uh, compared to the levels in 2019 by 2030. So, to to uh, to keep 1.5 within reach, we actually need a rapid and deep reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, in the decades after the baking, uh, and that uh, should be around 43% decline in emissions by 2030, and then a 60% decline by 2035. So we are way behind. And also, uh, if we look at the current scale of investments in clean energy, as well as the uh, the installed capacity, there is a huge gap. First, uh, like in, in terms of the investment, today our uh, investments account for around 700 billion US dollar globally. Uh, but if we want to keep 1.5 within reach, we need to uh, double that amount of investment by 2030. And then uh, actually not only triple, but uh, to increase it uh, uh, three times, four times by 2050. And that goes also uh, for renewable energy. The current share of renewable energy in total energy mix is around uh, th 30%. Um, and to keep uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius within reach, we need to increase that to 60% by 2030, which is like uh, only um, you know six years from now. And then we need to increase it uh, to 90% by 2050. Uh, this is also true for other uh, clean energy investments like the hydrogen, uh, the energy efficiency, the carbon ca capture and storage, and so on and so forth. Uh, what I want to say that uh, the good news that came out of COP28 is that the, the, the decision or the communique uh, from the COP has included this uh, language from the science, the language on keeping 1.5 degrees Celsius within reach and also the language on the reducing the amount uh, of greenhouse gas emissions that be uh, reduced. And this is kind of indicative uh, of uh, a collective agreement that this is a global concern and that everyone is concerned about the consequences of the climate change. 
However, what remains concerning uh, moving forward uh, is actually translating those words in, uh, in the documents and, uh, uh, you know, uh, translating the um, pledges into real commitments and action uh, on the ground. This is, uh, uh, you know, the concern that we have after each COP. The COP uh, finish and then what is next? Uh, and secondly, let me uh, delve more on the language uh, on the transition away from the fossil fuels. So does it signal an end of the fossil fuels? Uh, the short answer is no. And uh, and if we look at the, the language, uh, first of all, I want to say, uh, well, the inclusion of transition away from the fossil fuel is historic. Um, it is the first time that the COP communique uh, mention it. Uh, however, the this this is not revolutionary, as uh, Kate mentioned. There will be a decline, but not an end of the fossil fuel. And the language itself uh, in, is in in many ways actually uh, reinforce a business as usual for the fossil fuels. And why is that? Because it has too many uh, you know uh, loopholes uh, out there. Uh, the, uh, let me point out to a few, um, uh, you know, things. First, the decision does not provide an explicit definition on what transition away from the fossil fuel intent entails, and it does not uh, stipulate a timeline for when this transition should happen, and it keeps it, you know, uh, open to different uh, interpretations. And secondly, uh, the document uh, makes the reference uh, to the use of abatement removal technologies uh, such as the carbon capture, uh, utilization, and storage. Uh, this kind of, of technology, uh, although it's promising, uh, it has received a lot of pushback from previous COPs and a lot of criticism. Uh, and that is because, you know, if we look at the current scale of this technology today, um, uh, it, the technology is still in its infancy and mainly uh, or the commercial use uh, of it is for enhanced oil recovery. Um, and uh, this uh, for some uh, criti uh, criticism says that it is um, uh, actually an excuse to continue with the fossil fuels. And third, also on the wording on transition fuels, uh, now, Kate, for example, mentioned uh, it can be a uh, natural gas, but uh, there is no explicit definition, again, for what transition fuels are. It can be uh, natural gas, it can be maybe green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, maybe nuclear, uh, so it's still open to different uh, interpretations. And fourth, um, the, the report does not include uh, any hard obligation uh, for uh, for the countries to commit, you know, to transition away, which we don't exactly know what it is, but it calls on uh, parties to contribute to transition, and this is a kind of a weak language uh, because it invites parties to transition away, but it does not stipulate an actual demand to take an action. Uh, last but not least, also. There is no, so countries in 2025 in the COP30 will submit a new nationally determined contributions with, with updated ambitions on climate mitigation and adaptation. But also uh, the current communique does not have uh, enough guidance on how can countries reflect 
the transition away in their new uh, NDCs in 2025. Uh, so uh, I'd leave it there, uh, but I want also to say uh, probably um, this is not, uh, uh, you know, a revolutionary, but moving forward, I think uh, uh, the COP28 set the path for uh, more, uh, you know, stringent uh, language on uh, transitioning away from the fossil fuels. And I think countries will need to uh, be ready for that kind of, uh, you know, uh, stipulation. Thank you very much, Aisha. I think it's a perfect way to uh, conclude the interventions with this word of, uh, if I can say, a cautious optimism on the, the road ahead. Uh, so let me uh, just inform our participants with regards to the Q&A session. If you'd like to ask a question to uh, uh, our speakers, please use the chat box uh, and send a message to MEI event, who will then uh, send me the, the questions. Uh, and while the people uh, can get ready for uh, questions, I, I'll, I'll ask uh, one first. Uh, and we covered here a lot of the different dimensions that come into play when it comes to uh, the COP, uh, the long-term issues, the uh, difficulties of uh, reforms, of uh, implementations. Uh, there's also the short-term politics that get into uh, the equation. And I wanted to ask uh, the panel, and uh, you've been covering, you've been attending those events uh, for many years. This COP was in many ways quite unusual, but in particular because of uh, the war in Gaza. I'm wondering how much did you feel that the, the regional landscape, the regional context, uh, actually played a role or not. Maybe uh, in the end, the discussion at the COP were completely disconnected from the events. But the fact that you had, for instance, President Biden uh, not attending the COP uh, and again, the, uh, let's say the public opinion emotion, the, the emotion of the public uh, uh, towards Gaza, did you feel like it actually uh, distracted from uh, what was happening in terms of the content at the COP. So this is actually a general question. I don't know who would like to um, address that first. I can go first. Um, I didn't notice any, any distraction. Um, I had expected that it would sort of overshadow because there was, uh, you know, there were certain issues that came up before, I mean, Already, there was a lot of criticism that Dr. Sultan Jabra was heading, uh, you know, as an as as head of ADNOC, that he was heading a climate um, summit. There was a worry that Syrian president was invited. You know, you had the Ukraine war. Um, so I think they allowed small protests, which were you know peaceful. They were quite small. So I think, um, but um, there was no. There was no impact on attendance, for example. I expected that maybe attendance might be impacted, um, but that wasn't. So I think uh, there was a slight little geopolitical niggle when it was a choice of Baku, Azerbaijan, because of Armenia um, objecting at first. That was resolved, the fact that Saudi Arabia came along. And yeah, as 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 uh, I just said, it was more in the language uh, but there was no, um, no, there was no indication that the geopolitical situation had impacted the um, 
the proceedings, the outcome. Um, so I think it was probably a good idea that people were allowed to protest, but it was really, really very, very small and very, um, you know, very uh, ineffective. So, but the voices were heard, but that was it. Thank you, Kate. I don't know if anyone else would like to add. I didn't attend the COP and actually I've given up on attending COPs <laughs> because they tend to be, um, you know, a lot of talk. I just focus my attention on how countries in the region are implementing uh, their commitments. Um, but as an observer from afar, I, would, I think that the events over the last few years and then culminating in the Israeli-Gaza conflict is really a, um, a symptom of the world, you know, moving towards being very polarized and moving towards being very insular. And that limits the space for multilateral cooperation. And that's something that events like the COP, meetings like the COP needs, where you need to come together and seed a little bit of that, your sovereignty to achieve something uh, for the global good. And we're starting to see it from 2018, actually, when US and China started with their tensions and increasingly the kind of rivalry, um, that wasn't good for the rest of us because they are the leaders and we are the price takers. Um, so if they're not talking and not moving ahead with you know increasing their own ambition, it doesn't set a good example for the rest of us. So in the last year before COP took place, um, there was actually a kind of the situation where the US and China wasn't really talking was very worrying, uh, particularly for this region. But then uh, we had the San Francisco summit and that was kind of hailed as, okay, a good, a positive step forward for the two uh, major powers that they're starting to talk. Um, I guess it, it, it will go through such swings in that relationship. And admittedly, it is the most important bilateral relationship in the world sets the tone for the rest of us. So hopefully um, with, you know, um, Xie Zhenhua now stepping down from his role, it was just announced, I think last month, uh, due to health reasons, he's stepping down. I think the two uh, men had a very good working relationship over the years, but I hope that his, his uh, successor will carry on with this uh, healthy working relationship uh, with John Kerry, with the US side. I think that's important because that relationship actually carried us through from the 2018 years up, up to now. Uh, they've managed to somewhat kind of ring fence that working relationship and, and continue talking to each other. And that's led to you know some outcomes, including their pledge to work on methane um, and, and to do more with each other. Thank you very much, Sharon. I don't know, Aisha, if you'd like to add anything on this. Uh, just a brief note. Uh, I think um, so. I attended the COP, and then um, in the first week, there wasn't any kind of you know uh, mention of Gaza or. Uh, but in the second week, th there were some uh, uh, mild protests uh, mentioning of the Gaza. But uh, what I want to mention, like COP twenty eight, for the first time, actually included uh, an agenda on peace. Um, so this is the first time. So. I think this is a good step because we shouldn't look at the climate issue as a separate from the security and the geopolitical uh, matter. So probably this is a, a good step moving forward. Um, yeah, but I think um, and when it comes to the implementation, 
sometimes when we have a security challenge, of course, we put the security challenge to, uh, on the agenda. Um, and then the other issues like the climate change issues. Uh, but during COP itself, I didn't see any distraction uh, uh, on the procedures uh, of the COP. Uh, um, and the, and that actually, sometimes it doesn't really matter uh, uh, when the president is not present. What matters is the delegation who represents the country and then the negotiations that happens between the countries to come uh, with the final uh, conclusion uh, of the COP. So in, in that case, we didn't see any distraction. Thank you very much. This was for the the political uh, dimension of the the COP. I have uh, a few questions from uh, our participants regarding the more the, the technical uh, or technological prospects. Uh, let me start with one question uh, from uh, Georgi Bustin, a former uh, visiting professor and a good friend of the Middle East Institute. Uh, and his question relates to the energy mix. He asks, uh, what part of the energy mix? will nuclear power constitute in the best of scenarios? And can the new fusion nuclear technology currently developed in Europe and Japan bring a breakthrough? Um, so again, I think it's a question for everyone on the panel. I don't know who would like to volunteer uh, to answer it. Okay, we're not, sorry. I was going to say we're not going to reach our targets if if we don't include nuclear. And uh, there's been a lot of talk about you know small modular units, but they haven't really taken off yet. I think they're still, um, you know, Fukushima changed the whole uh, dynamic and, and 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 people's thinking about about nuclear. Um, so I think what we're going to be seeing is is likely not that much new investment in greenfield. You know, in large nuclear power reactors, they're very expensive. They're not going to be online in time for us to meet these targets. I mean, I know the IA has talked about yes, we need more nuclear, but if you look at you know um, small modular units, yes, they're cheaper, they're easier to move around. You can place them. I think there's one in Russia, but it's not really showing signs of, of going. Uh, we might see, we're seeing, I suppose, in the UAE, we have nuclear. Uh, Iran is apparently considering building, yes, another nuclear power station. Uh, probably Saudi Arabia next. You've got a nuclear power station being built in, in Egypt. So I think it's happening in, in the Middle East, not on, on a large scale, but um, the rest of the world, I think, is going to it's going to be very difficult because of the you know the not in my backyard kind of kind of attitude. So um, I I think that the prospects for nuclear power um, is different. And let's not forget that we have um, very limited supplies of uranium from certain countries, um, Russia being one of them, uh, and former Soviet. So I think it's. Um, it's it's rather a difficult one to see growing exponentially. There will be a bit more capacity, but not not enough. And I just wanted to mention on the 1.5, um, we are already at nearly 1.5. We've actually breached 1.5. It may not be permanent, but it's actually quite an important number to sort of think about as 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 we talk about the need to keep it alive. Well, it's sort of we're there already. Aisha, I think you wanted to. Uh respond as well uh, yes uh on the nuclear actually like uh cop 28 
uh, came up with a, a pledge uh, on tripling uh, down the nuclear energy, uh, I think by 2050. Um, so nuclear is already seen as part of uh, the energy mix. Uh, but for me, um, I'm not really specialized uh, in the nuclear, but a main concern for me is the safety that comes uh, with it, uh, Fukushima and other, uh, you know, incidents uh, uh, actually concerning. Um, and it might trigger, you know, uh, some um, uh, kind of geopolitical issues if we go uh, for it. Um, uh, but I will leave it there. <laughs> I was going to jump in and say it really depends on which crowd you're speaking to. Um, I've been in some conferences just really focusing on nuclear, and I think the nuclear advocates are really, you know, bullish about the prospects of nuclear making it to everyone's energy mix. But on a personal level, I think realistically, if you want to go to net zero, you have to consider all technologies, including nuclear and also speaking from a small uh, state like Singapore, where we are really alternative energy disadvantaged, that's the term that they use, the government uses it here. They are keeping a very open mind to using nuclear in the energy mix. But as Kate has also mentioned, the, the NIMBY syndrome <laughs> tends to be very strong. But uh, coming from uh, you know a more objective point of view, I think the technology has really improved um, the only issue when you think about Fukushima, it was not a failure of the power plant. It was actually a natural disaster that had knocked it out. Um, so it was not the technology, it was not the failure to follow safety pro protocols. It was really a tsunami that just knocked it out, right? Um, so, you, you know, uh, we just have to put in place the kind of, you know, safeguards against proliferation and safety measures uh, for increased climate uh, catastrophe, increased risk of the climate, you know, impacting on the use of this this technology. So I would say that um, I think that there are purists out there who say, no, nuclear is, uh, doesn't qualify as a renewable energy. We should never go down that path. But we have to be very realistic and pragmatic when we consider, you know, all scenarios uh, to try to reach net zero. Thank you very much. Uh, I have... Uh... A question uh, which in a way uh, is very related to the issue of technology which is on finance a uh, question coming from uh, uh, my colleague clement shea who's a research fellow at the institute here and he's asking about the issue of uh, financial support uh to uh, the global south when it comes to uh, measures uh, and reforms uh in the, the, the in the in the field of climate uh, and he's asking, what, to what extent is finance being extended to the global south today? And are calls for scaling up uh, climate finance to disadvantages, disadvantaged communities uh, answered? So um, who would like to uh, start on this uh, question? Should we uh, go back to Kate? I think I can tackle it first. Or Sharon, okay, sorry. <laughs> For the Southeast Asia um, countries, I think the disappointment is in the speed of the flow of finance towards this region. And uh, we, we're really not seeing um, 
the the promises that have been made, you know, being fulfilled, except for maybe the two jet peas that have been uh, pledged to Indonesia and to Vietnam. And even for the Indonesia one, it's been criticized as being long on promise, but short on uh, the delivery. And also domestically uh, within Indonesia, there have been you know issues relating to uh, accepting the terms of the JetP and issues on interpreting you know what might be just, what might be equitable, and what might be an orderly transition for Indonesia. Um, I believe that part of this needs time uh, as well for uh, any country's domestic agencies to kind of come together and and make a collective decision right on whether a certain package works for the country. But that's just too slow. Uh, so, you know, I think the Global South now has to be more creative and uh, look for dynamic approaches to, to catalyze private finance uh, to help themselves transition out. And, and some of it has to do with, you know, um, thinking of creative ways in, in getting finance, financial instruments that will help them to retire their, their actually quite young fleets uh, in, in coal and uh, to find ways to, you know, replace that, you know, with, with other means of uh, tapping into uh, renewable energy. So I think gone are the days where you just look to the global north <laughs> for help and and uh, reach out your hands for, for that help. I think uh, countries now really have to look to their own means uh, to find ways and maybe to look to to regional groupings, um, you know, uh, or sub regional groupings to to help each other. And I think um, last year we had the ASEAN Gulf Cooperation Council summit for the first time, and I think that really holds promise for both regions to help each other. Uh, for instance, for Southeast Asia to tap into the kind of technologies that's emerging in the Middle East. Um, CCUS and such, and for the Middle East to come to this region and tap into uh, other mechanisms that can help uh, the region to transition to net zeroing, including you know uh, trying to you know garner good quality carbon credits from this region because we have we have that as a resource, um, and and you know vice versa. I think that there are, there are many ways that we can um, exchange information and help each other to uh, reach the goals that we've set for ourselves. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd like us to uh, come back later on the issue of, uh, or the, the prospects of cooperation between Southeast Asia and, uh, and the Gulf uh, in the field of climate change. But if you allow me, just as we discuss the Global South, I have a question uh, with regards to the, the differences you you would see in terms of policies being conducted by the Middle Eastern countries in the field of climate change. Because uh, the fact that COP was organized in UAE, a lot of the, the uh, focus was on the UAE, uh, but a lot of other uh, Arab countries face tremendous challenges when it comes to uh, economic reforms and so on. So I'm curious how you see the differences, maybe the imbalance uh, between the, the various uh, uh, actors, various countries in the Middle East when it comes to uh, uh, climate change. Uh, this may be a question maybe for uh, Kate and Aisha in particular. Okay, now I can go first. Can I go back to the previous question? And uh, again, when you talk about Africa, you know, as the global South, I suppose, 
it, it's home to about 30% of, of the critical minerals that we need for the transition, right? But they only receive 2% of clean energy investment. So that's the gap that needs to be filled. And, you know, not just that. I mean, it doesn't take that much to help Africa develop, for example, clean cooking. Uh, we're talking billions, not trillions per year. But to go back to um, to the Middle East, I think, yes, it's not, we're not on the same track. There is no sort of an integrated GCC policy when it comes to renewables, which is a pity. You don't have an integrated gas system, which would really help. But at the same time, you have a lot of advances being made, not just in the UAE, because we're seeing on water management, for example, which is really, really important, I think. And it's really being affected by climate change because of increased salinity of water, uh, rising sea levels, etc. So we're seeing a switch to reverse osmosis. We're seeing more renewables um, planned uh, for use in desalination, which is, you know, a very, very growing uh, sector. Um, you've got um, uh, Oman has got a very, very, and I think Aisha knows a lot about this. Oman has got a very, very um, comprehensive um, renewable energy program. As I said, Saudi Arabia is planning to go up to uh, 150 gigawatts of renewables. And I think 2023, they really came, um, you know, um, they really did add a lot of capacity, um, the renewable capacity. So I think it's, um, it's on the right track. We've got a good energy mix. I mean, if you want to have an example of how you can have a healthy energy mix, you look at the UAE, for example, which, uh, once you have the fourth um, unit at Baraka, the Baraka nuclear power station online, that's going to supply about 20% of your total electricity. So um, it's uh, it's they're investing in, in a lot of gas. Of course, as you invest in, in, in gas, you're getting liquid. So you don't need to invest so much in, um, in growing your upstream production capacity. But then you look at countries like Kuwait, which because of the political... Uh, chaos, you know, we've now had yet another parliament disbanded. Um, they haven't really advanced very much. You have um, Iraq, which is still, you know, uh, burning a lot of its gas. And again, the, you know, if, if you're going to reach the methane pledge, if these countries that are the big oil and gas producers, if they don't decarbonize, there's no way we're going to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees. I mean, they because they are they may not be the biggest polluters in terms in per capita terms, but you actually do need the industry because let's face it, you know, the, 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 these 20 to 30 countries that are the big petrostates account for about 80% of all emissions. Um, so yes, I think Iraq has to step it up. Iran is suffering, even though they did have quite a large um, renewables capacity due to hydro, that's in decline. So again, um, a, a feature of, of climate change impacting hydropower. Um, you have Egypt, which is also an example of a lot of ambition, including green hydrogen, including, you know, the Middle East's biggest wind um, farm that is being planned. But again, the proof is in the pudding. There's a lot of talk about growing renewable capacity, but, you know, there are certain countries where you know they set targets and they meet them, UAE being one of them. I think we're seeing a lot of developments in Oman. I think Saudi Arabia is really serious um, about um, about switching to um, to renewables for power generation so that um, they, because they're still burning a lot of oil. So let's face it, the base load for electricity generation in the Gulf states remains natural gas and that has to change. Aisha? 
so yes, so um, yes, building on what Kate said and Sharon as well. Uh, now we see that um, you know, although there is a progress when the in the climate negotiations during the COPs, uh, in climate finance, for example, and other fronts. The progress is mostly on the procedural uh, level, but not really on the implementation. And I do agree with Sharon that we need to really look for regional uh, solutions when it comes to addressing the issues of the climate change. Uh, for the Middle East, uh, the Middle East, yes, uh, 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 the region doesn't have uh, you know, homogeneous countries. Countries are different in their political structure. The, the economy size and the natural resources uh, uh, as well. Uh, and as Kate mentioned, they are in different track uh, for uh, adopting the clean energy or in their energy transition. Uh, the Gulf countries are, you know, uh, going ahead with the renewable energy, the hydrogen, um, carbon capture and, uh, and, and storage. And this in a way, could, uh, you know, create um, uh, uh, stances of competition because everyone is uh, trying to build their uh, competitive advantage as they uh, diversify their economies and as they diversify uh, their energy mix. At the same time, uh, I think uh, it is also uh, the transition, the energy transition, and also tackling the issues of the climate change, uh, given the diversity of the Middle East countries, there are also many opportunities for uh, collaboration. Now, Morocco, for example, is more advanced. Uh, Morocco and Jordan are advanced in their renewable energy development, uh, so they have the the you know the know how on how to do this kind uh, of business. Uh, we do also have the, the the Gulf countries like the UAE, Oman, and Saudi are for, for uh, uh, also runners in, in renewable energy. So the, these countries have the the technical technical the the policy know how, so they can work together in addressing the, the, those issues. Uh, there are other also major issues: the water uh, security and the food security. In the food security, we have, for example, Iran. Iraq, um, um, and if we uh, go a little bit further, also Turkey, uh, these countries have the potential for, uh, you know, um, uh, enabling food uh, cooperation uh, between countries. So this is something that needs to be tapped instead of like uh, depending on countries which are far, uh, you know, far away. Uh, uh, to import food, it's very uh, costly, but there are too many opportunities for cooperation. And we, in our recent uh, volume, we looked at the UAE and Iran, and actually there is um, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, co-investment uh, and trade uh, in, in the food uh, uh, front. Um, and uh, I think there are also potential areas for collaboration and cooperation in, in the water security. Uh, so this is also one of the contentious issues in the region uh, that needs to be uh, looked at uh, farther uh, because climate change is affecting everyone. And uh, if we uh, allow it to, uh, you know, lead to the conflict between countries, um, um, we, we lose the opportunity uh, to actually find the solutions. Uh, so for me, I think climate action uh, has triggered both uh, the competition and the cooperation as well, but this needs to be 
you know, uh, uh, approach intentionally uh, uh, from actors in the region. And if we speak about renewable energy, for example, uh, if we speak about within the Gulf itself, uh, Gulf countries, some of them have high potential of solar and wind, other has a lower potential. And this creates a chance, you know, for the trade of the renewable energy between countries. So the country with high potential, uh, uh, high production can actually, uh, you know, export the, the, the energy to its neighboring country. Uh, but there is the issue that the, the Gulf countries are in the same time zone. So their production can happen at the same time. Uh, so maybe there's no need for trade. Uh, so they need to think maybe collectively to uh, export it to other countries which are in a different time zone, um, like, you know, Central Asia, uh, Europe, um, and also the neighbor, uh, neighboring Africa. Well, thank you very much uh, for both of you for this uh, uh, great overview of the uh, the challenges that uh, uh, those countries face. Uh, I have two questions now uh, from the audience, uh, which are for Sharon. Uh, uh, so I'll I'll, uh, I'll mention both. Uh, first question comes from uh, uh, Dr. Asif Shuja, who's uh, uh, another of uh, our former colleague and a good friend of the institute. He he mentions or he comes back to uh, your point on the relevance of critical minerals uh, in energy transition and the fact that you highlighted the the current restrictions on uh, this sector uh, so the question is could you please suggest ways to mitigate the export import restrictions on critical minerals uh, that's the first question if you allow me to add the second question uh, from Clemens Shea, uh, and that's a question uh, specifically on the Singaporean uh, context. Uh, coming back to the Future Energy Fund, which was recently announced uh, during the speech of uh, Deputy Prime Minister Lawrence Wong, uh, which signals how Singapore prioritizes uh, energy transition. Considering how natural gas contributes to more than 90% of Singapore's energy mix, how optimistic should we be about a reduced reliance on natural gas in the future? And does Singapore have renewable energy capabilities apart from its imports? So those are questions for Sharon. Uh, thank you in advance for answering them. <laughs> Thank you very much for the questions. I'll take the first one uh, on critical minerals. I think what we're seeing actually uh, on a global scale is a kind of discourse that is talking about um, um, the, 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 the competition over, over criti critical minerals between two very major players. And that conversation kind of started with the production of semiconductors. And, and semiconductors also use critical minerals in, in its production. But that, that discourse kind of spilled over into general uh, minerals uh, space. And what makes a mineral critical is when how it depends on how you determine it. You know, for, for our research in climate change, we determine that a mineral is critical if it's needed in the production of clean energy technologies. Um, so what's happened is that there's this very unhealthy discourse right now uh, 
particularly from certain countries that want to uh, nearshore or friendshore some of these resources, and also from countries that want to protect those resources. So you see a rise in resource nationalism, uh, including in this region. So for instance, Indonesia has uh, imposed um, at various stages different bans on different minerals, nickel, on copper, um, because they they want to move into a downstreaming, uh, they have a downstreaming strategy for Indonesia, and which is to you know kind of to grow their own uh, industries and and move on to more value add uh, products rather than just exporting the raw critical minerals. So what can we do to mitigate uh, some of this? I think it is to uh, really advocate for a more regional or sub-regional approach to enhance the resilience of the critical mineral supply chains. And um, one, of the way, or one of the ways is for, for instance, for ASEAN uh, countries to come together and to uh, you know, take on a more open uh, trade stance rather than to hide behind protectionist uh, measures and to um, leverage on each other's strengths uh, to make sure that, you know, that the, the supply chain is reliable, uh, transparent, and um, uninterrupted. That's the most important part is that it's uninterrupted. And the second is to um, basically look into new uh, technologies technologies because today's critical mineral may one day be overtaken when new technology or new science comes about. Uh, for instance, there's been some science coming about where they say, you know, sodium can replace lithium, right? So if you if you invest um, a great deal into a particular sector, the next, you know, in 10 or 20 years later, you might find that, oh, that, that mineral is no longer critical because some scientific breakthrough has happened to replace that, that mineral. The third one is um, to really invest into uh, the principles of a circular economy because ultimately, right, critical minerals depend on very heavily extractive philosophy. And this heavily extractive philosophy for national development of countries ultimately will not benefit its people. And also, we, we know that um, you want a clean energy transition, someone's got to pay the price. The dirty... Uh, work has to be done someplace and we don't want it to be done only in the global south uh, you know where the countries and the communities pay the price in terms of their health in terms of uh, the environment so if you adopt circular economy principles whereby you look to reuse some of the critical minerals in discarded uh, um, products or in items you will ultimately save yourselves from going down this complete 100% extractive uh, philosophy, which will only damage your own econ your own uh, environment and, and people. So I think a lot more work has to be done, actually, um, to you know look into the enhancing the resilience of supply chains, but also embracing circular economy principles into the supply chain. Um, the second question on Singapore's context Yes, LNG constitutes 90, more than ninety percent, and as you know, um, Singapore is, has been on this race to also uh, adopt solar uh, to harness solar energy. But the the research shows that even if you were to you know paper all of Singapore over with solar panels, we cannot reach 
uh, our desired uh, level of, of uh, RE. So there are now different approaches, including um, an interest in harnessing geothermal in uh, the northern part of Singapore, but that involves you know, dr drilling very deep down in, into the Earth's core to try to reach that uh, source of energy. Um, the, the second one, which is a little bit more realistic, is actually importing uh, green electricity and that has started last in June 2022 uh, with the uh, import of hydropower electricity from Laos. So we have the Lao Thai Malaysia Singapore Power Integration uh, Project and it has worked quite successfully because primarily one, there was a high level of political trust amongst the countries. Two, something changed in which uh, no, Singapore found an imperative to join the grouping. It started as an LTM project, Lao Thai Malaysia, and then later on Singapore joined as LTMS. Um, and because that was because, of course, the climate imperative, right? Uh, necessitated that Singapore look for other sources of energy. And the success of the LTMS has now prolif um, driven another grouping to also do their own project, uh, their own power integration uh, pipeline. And that is the BIMP PIP, Brunei, Indonesia, um, Malaysia, and the Philippines. Um, when I say Malaysia, it's actually Eastern Malaysia. So Sabah, Sarawak, uh, Kalimantan and the Philippines have now decided mm -hmm. to kind of copy the success of the LTMS PIP and to borrow some of the best practices from that to their own sub-region. So what's happening is we are seeing a lot of interest in the region to um, do more of the cross-border power, uh, cross power trade. And I think it makes sense because if you are able to uh, connect your, build more interconnectors and transfer electricity uh, in a, not a unidirectional way, but multi-directionally and with uh, multi-parties, it makes sense uh, for the region because ultimately, I think the IEA has done studies, or it was it IRENA, uh, that said that the region has enough renewable energy sources to power itself and more. Uh, the problem is how do you harness it and how do you share the resources equitably uh, to the underserved areas uh, in the region. So that's the other. And of course, I mentioned uh, earlier that Singapore is very open to new technologies. Uh, so another way to replace LNG is uh, you know that Singapore has a national hydrogen strategy. And uh, we're still in the very early stages of looking into hydrogen. I think uh, we're looking towards um, the region like the Middle East because you have done a lot more work and a lot more uh, research has gone into hydrogen. And I think Singapore is looking to the UAE, for instance, uh, as an example, and to learn from. And hydrogen, if, if possible, could become a replacement for LNG once we can overcome you know, safety issues, transportation issues, and so on. Um, so I think those are some of the, the ways uh, that you know, Singapore has demonstrated actually its uh, very serious intention to transition. And I think you would have read that uh, we are also starting to impose uh, a tax on travellers on for sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, that's the extent that you know Singapore government is really so serious about it. Uh, they're putting their money where the mouth is, and and really just uh, putting it out there. Um, so what can we hope for? I think we can hope for uh, leaps and bounds and breakthroughs in technology. I think that will really help uh, Singapore. 
to reach its net zero gains. And that means um, investing in research and innovation and encouraging you know, other stakeholders to join us in that effort to, uh, to reach net zero. I hope that answers the question. Yes, uh, thank you very much, Sharon. And uh, actually, it's a perfect transition. As you mentioned, the uh, the, the Singapore UAE uh, uh, cooperation, uh, perfect transition to the, the last part uh, of our discussion as we reach uh, the conclusion. And the, the last question I'd like uh, the four of you to, um, to, um, uh, to cover is the similar challenges that you see in both uh, the Gulf and Southeast Asia and the ways, the areas of cooperation that we can identify uh, between both regions, uh, as mentioned before, uh, possibly cooperation at the, the, the level of the GCC and ASEAN, but probably other uh, projects, initiatives that you may, uh, uh, may uh, mention. So I, I, I'm curious how you see both regions, uh, so the Gulf and Southeast Asia, facing uh, the challenge of uh, climate change and uh, possibly uh, work together uh, to address it. Uh, so I think we, we can do a, a, a round table uh, with the, the final remarks uh, on this question. Um, I'll uh, start this time with uh, Aisha. Uh, I don't know if Mohammed can join us uh, as well. Uh, but Aisha, please, uh, floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, Jando. Um, so yes, the, the, the Middle East and Southeast Asia, they, they well, they are uh, in different parts of the world. Uh, um, in a way, they face some common challenges, and these include uh, uh, in the regional water security, um, uh, 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 food security is a, a big issue for the Middle East, but probably is not that big in Southeast Asia, but it's an issue that is emerging because of the climate change. Some countries face floods, some countries face drought, and that is impacting the agriculture in, in the Southeast Asia. Uh, but it's not uh, as major as uh, of an issue as in the Gulf. And both the Middle East and uh, if we speak about the Gulf and the Southeast Asia, uh, we are in different tracks uh, on, you know, our energy transitions. Um, but I think there are uh, many uh, areas where the two regions can learn from one uh, another and also can co-invest uh, within one another. Uh, renewable energy is already an area that, uh, you know, both region has looked at uh, already. Uh, we do have uh, in Southeast Asia, investments uh, from the UAE uh, uh, in Malaysia and in Indonesia um, uh, in, in solar energy. Um, and also there is an interest uh, from Saudi Arabia and from the UAE in, uh, you know, uh, mangrove uh, protection uh, in Southeast Asia. Um, I think where both regions also can cooperate uh, uh, on is Southeast Asia is rich uh, in you know uh, forest uh, uh, and the the uh, the biodiversity, so there is an opportunity for collaboration in terms of the carbon markets. Um, uh, so that is one area where the two regions and also the Gulf uh, uh, they are more advantaged when it comes to the finance, 
Sharon mentioned maybe finance in Southeast Asia uh, is a, one of the major issues that face the countries. So opportunities of co-investments, uh, uh, you know, do exist uh, between the countries in, in hydrogen and renewable energy, uh, biodiversity protection. Um, and also, if we looked at the transition uh, and the energy transition in both regions, uh, I think the way it would happen, because the Gulf countries are rich in the oil and gas, I think the transition will involve uh, you know, natural gas in the next stage and also blue and green hydrogen uh, much more uh, as a next uh, step. Uh, Southeast Asia is actually uh, still depending uh, on natural gas and uh, on coal uh, uh, import. And also it, it does foresee that the hydrogen um, uh, and, and the natural gas will be the next stage for its trans transition. So this is also another area where the, both region can, uh, you know, work uh, on together. And that can be on the uh, technical know-how, uh, maybe at the early stage and the research and the development at an early stage. And once the technology picks up, uh, you know, trade, of course, and co-investment uh, will be the next step. Thank you very much, Aisha. Uh, let me turn to Mohammed. Uh, what uh, would be, in your view, uh, seen from the uh, UAE Embassy in uh, Singapore, the, the areas of cooperation between the Gulf and Southeast Asia to address uh, the, the challenges of climate change? Yeah, thank you, Dr. Chen. I think, uh, uh, first of all, you know, uh, my our guests or speakers here, they, they, they would be more, uh, they would have more of an idea about Southeast Asia in general, I'd say they write their focus on research, whereas myself, I'm more about facilitating cooperation between the UAE and Singapore. So let me talk about the UAE and Singapore in a sense, uh, rather than Southeast Asia, since I'm here in, in the embassy. So throughout my, uh, I've been here for around a year and a half now. Uh, and I can tell you that there is multiple areas of cooperation uh, or interest in cooperation between both the UAE and Singapore. We have multiple delegations coming in from the UAE on a you know weekly basis. Uh, right now we have around maybe I think two delegations this week just who just came in, you know, for uh, basically going to meetings, uh, uh, connecting with their Singaporean counterparts. And I think what uh, just to top up on what Asha uh, Asha mentioned, she she actually captured it very uh, very well. Uh, like you know, food security, water security—that's a big area uh, of cooperation that we have, or that is ongoing between the two countries. Uh, in addition to renewable energy, uh, so she mentioned that there was some investments by the UAE in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, yes, uh, there are in in Malaysia and Indonesia, uh, and they're looking to expand. You know, we have a. I think it's a ten billion dollar fund that was launched back in twenty. 20, if I'm correct, uh, in Indonesia. And a lot of this investments it goes into renewable energy, actually. Uh, so, so that was actually, and that's managed by ADQ, one of our sovereign wealth funds. So the, we, I, I saw throughout this past year, you know, there's a lot of engagement from even our sovereign wealth funds for investments into, you know, renewable, sustainable energy uh, within Southeast Asia, uh, uh, through Singapore as well. You know, here in Singapore, we have over 14, I believe over 14 UAE national companies, uh, you know, who have offices here. Mastar is one of them, which is, you know, leading uh, 
renewable energy company, and they have big plans for for the region itself, not only in Singapore but you know Indonesia, Master, uh, Malaysia, uh, etc. Uh, so, you know, just going forward, uh, and additionally, we also have multiple platforms between both countries, the UAE and Singapore, whether it's, you know, the joint, uh, uh, the, the council that we have between both, WWE Singapore joint forum that we have, uh, the joint committee that we have, we have multiple high-level visits. Uh, the last visit was by the Prime Minister of uh, Singapore back in October to the UAE. And multiple agreements were signed. One of them, I think, was also a green economy framework, if I'm correct. So there is a lot of cooperation uh, happening between both countries. And this is not only through Singapore, but I'm sure even if you look into, if you look deeper into the other uh, countries in Southeast Asia, uh, you'll see that there are multiple areas of cooperation ha happening as we speak. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'd like to hear from the rest of the panels uh, on their views as well. Uh, but Aisha, I think she she actually captured a lot of it uh, very well. Uh, the areas that we are seeking to cooperate with Southeast Asia in general. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, thank you very much for this uh, insight. Uh, let, let me turn to uh, to Kate uh, as well. Okay, we are running out of time, so I'll keep it really short. I think one of the interesting things we've seen is the developing relationship between China and the GCC countries. If you look at the relationship used to be mainly oil trade, now it's more investment. And if you look at the amount of investments that have come in, um, the, China is now accounts for the, it's the biggest trading partner of the GCC countries that overtook um, the EU a couple of years ago. So I think that's really important. I think the components for renewable energy for electrolyzers is another area that we're seeing um, China coming in uh, because they're very, you know, electrolyzers are, are, are expensive. They're huge. Importing them is difficult. China is the biggest producer. So I think we're seeing uh, plants being uh, built in, in Saudi Arabia to supply Neom, you know, the green city, um, the carbon zero carbon city and um, the same in the UAE. Um, I think we're seeing uh, more investment by the by the Aramcos and the and the Adnox of this world in downstream capacity in storage in, in Southeast Asian countries. And let's not forget India. We haven't spoken about India. India is going to be the biggest source of oil demand growth in the world between now and 2030. And I think that's an area that there is no competition with Russia. I mean, the whole Ukraine-Russia situation, the war, um, the situation in the Red Sea has actually redirected, of course, the redirection of of, um, of energy flows. Obviously, China as a maritime importer uh, is imports by pipeline from Russia. But I think those are the, the key markets for um, energy demand growth. So India is very important, and we recently saw Modi visiting the UAE. They talked about exporting electricity from the UAE to India. So I think that relationship, there is a pivot to the East, definitely. And I think it's 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 only going to grow from now on. I'll leave it at that so we don't uh, go over time. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Sharon? Um, as a uh, regional uh proponent of regional cooperation, of course, I would like to see more being done between the two regions, and particularly in under this atmosphere where, you know, um, countries are not 
the the spirit of multilateralism is really greatly weakened. I think regions can show an example and lead the way. And I, of course, Singapore and the UAE, we're like two peas in a pot. We are doing so much together and it's very natural for us to start bilaterally. But I think we together, UAE and Singapore, can engage uh, respective partners in our own regions to come on board together and do a lot more at the at the regional level. I think that would be very meaningful. Um, investments from the UAE uh, coming through to Singapore and flowing out into the region, I think that's definitely you know one way that we can show that we are the um, honest brokers here in, in this climate race and to try to bring everyone on board and to, to also to demonstrate to them that the benefits uh, in cooperation are not only confined to the UAE and Singapore, obviously, but also flowing out to the to the wider region. I think finance is definitely one uh, very big component. Um, but I have to caution, of course, um, when we talk about cooperation, you know, in the carbon markets to make sure that we are really uh, going in eyes wide open and making sure that we're not uh, greenwashing in any way. And of course, at the very high level, right, at the macro level, it does make sense to encourage our neighbours who have many of these green resources, mangroves, forests, jungles, to maintain them, to keep them, rather than to, you know, move into different land use uh, changes. Um, and and then the Middle East uh, can provide a strong incentive for the countries to do that. And likewise, for this region, you know, we are short on energy security, and we'll still be looking uh, towards the Middle East to help us uh, to, to supply that. Um, so there are many areas. I think we will probably need another webinar to talk about what more we can do together. But these are the green shoots, I would say, um, starting from last year's ASEAN GCC Summit. Aisha and I wrote a piece together, and uh, I think we can really you know, expand on some of those ideas. And I think I'll just stop there because we're already over time. Yeah. Thank you very much, Sharon, and thank you to uh, the four of you. Uh, and there is definitely a, a lot uh, to... Uh, to discuss for future uh, events uh, and uh, publications as well, uh, be it on uh, the Gulf and Southeast Asia uh, cooperation, or more generally on the the, the challenges, the uh, the, uh, the measures for the future of uh, mitigate mitigating uh, climate change. Uh, I'll stop here. Let me thank as well uh, our participants for uh, staying with us uh, with this uh, uh, <laughs> webinar. The next event of the Middle East Institute will be next Monday, Monday uh, 26th of uh, February. We'll have a book talk with uh, Cinzia Bianco uh, from the Euro European Council on Foreign Relations for her last book on the Gulf monarchies after the hour screen. This will be on Monday 26th at 4 p.m. Uh, Singapore time. Uh, thank you again, uh, dear Sharon, uh, Kate, Mohammed, and Aisha for your uh, participation to this event and uh, have everyone a good rest of the day. Thank you all.